英語聞き流し世界名作リスニング英語テキストと MP3 ダウンロード他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます 88thpp.com 88thpp.com 10. The Indian Gentleman But it was a perilous thing for Ermengarde and Lottie to make pilgrimages to the attic. They could never be quite sure when Sarah would be there, and they could scarcely ever be certain that Miss Amelia would not make a tour of inspection through the bedrooms after the pupils were supposed to be asleep. So their visits were rare ones, and Sarah lived a strange and lonely life. It was a lonelier life when she was downstairs than when she was in her attic. She had no one to talk to, and when she was sent out on errands and walked through the streets, a forlorn little figure carrying a basket or a parcel, trying to hold her hat on when the wind was blowing, and feeling the water soak through her shoes when it was raining, she felt as if the crowds hurrying past her made her loneliness greater. When she had been the Princess Sarah, driving through the streets in her brougham, or walking, attended by Mariette, the sight of her bright, eager little face and picturesque coats and hats had often caused people to look after her. A happy, beautifully cared for little girl naturally attracts attention. Shabby, Poorly dressed children are not rare enough and pretty enough to make people turn around to look at them and smile. No one looked at Sarah in these days, and no one seemed to see her as she hurried along the crowded pavements. She had begun to grow very fast, and, as she was dressed only in such clothes as the plainer remnants of her wardrobe would supply, she knew she looked very queer, indeed. All her valuable garments had been disposed of, and such as had been left for her use she was expected to wear so long as she could put them on at all. Sometimes, when she passed a shop window with a mirror in it, she almost laughed outright on catching a glimpse of herself, and sometimes her face went red and she bit her lip and turned away. In the evening, when she passed houses whose windows were lighted up, she used to look into the warm rooms and amuse herself by imagining things about the people she saw sitting before the fires or about the tables. It always interested her to catch glimpses of rooms before the shutters were closed. There were several families in the square in which Miss Minchin lived, with which she had become quite familiar in a way of her own. The one she liked best she called the large family. She called it the large family not because the members of it were big, for, indeed, most of them were little, but because there were so many of them. There were eight children in the large family, and a stout, rosy mother, and a stout, rosy father, and a stout, rosy grandmother, and any number of servants. The eight children were always either being taken out to walk or to ride in perambulators by comfortable nurses, or they were going to drive with their mama, or they were flying to the door in the evening to meet their papa and kiss him and dance around him and drag off his overcoat, and look in the pockets for packages, or they were crowding about the nursery windows and looking out and pushing each other and laughing, in fact, they were always doing something enjoyable and suited to the tastes of a large family. Sarah was quite fond of them, and had given them names out of books, quite romantic names. She called them the Montmorencies when she did not call them the large family. The fat, fair baby with a lace cap was Ethelberta Beecham Montmorency, the next baby was Violet Chumley Montmorency, the little boy who could just stagger and who had such round legs was Sidney Cecil Vivian Montmorency, and then came Lillian Evangeline Maud Marion, Rosalind Gladys, Guy Clarence, Veronica Eustacia, and Claude Harold Hector. One evening a very funny thing happened, though, perhaps, in one sense it was not a funny thing at all. Several of the Montmorencies were evidently going to a children's party, and just as Sarah was about to pass the door they were crossing the pavement to get into the carriage which was waiting for them. Veronica Eustacia and Rosalind Gladys, in white lace frocks and lovely sashes, had just got in, and Guy Clarence, aged five, was following them. He was such a pretty fellow and had such rosy cheeks and blue eyes, and such a darling little round head covered with curls, that Sarah forgot her basket and shabby cloak altogether, in fact, 
forgot everything but that she wanted to look at him for a moment. So she paused and looked. It was Christmas time, and the large family had been hearing many stories about children who were poor and had no mamas and papas to fill their stockings and take them to the pantomime, children who were, in fact, cold and thinly clad and hungry. In the stories, kind people, sometimes little boys and girls with tender hearts, invariably saw the poor children and gave them money or rich gifts, or took them home to beautiful dinners. Guy Clarence had been affected to tears that very afternoon by the reading of such a story, and he had burned with a desire to find such a poor child and give her a certain sixpence he possessed, and thus provide for her for life. An entire sixpence, he was sure, would mean affluence forevermore. As he crossed the strip of red carpet laid across the pavement from the door to the carriage, he had this very sixpence in the pocket of his very short man o' war trousers, and just as Rosalind Gladys got into the vehicle and jumped on the seat in order to feel the cushion spring under her, he saw Sarah standing on the wet pavement in her shabby frock and hat, with her old basket on her arm, looking at him hungrily. He thought that her eyes looked hungry because she had perhaps had nothing to eat for a long time. He did not know that they looked so because she was hungry for the warm, merry life his home held and his rosy face spoke of, and that she had a hungry wish to snatch him in her arms and kiss him. He only knew that she had big eyes and a thin face and thin legs and a common basket and poor clothes. So he put his hand in his pocket and found his sixpence and walked up to her benignly. Here, poor little girl, he said. Here is a sixpence. I will give it to you. Sarah started, and all at once realized that she looked exactly like poor children she had seen, in her better days, waiting on the pavement to watch her as she got out of her brougham. And she had given them pennies many a time. Her face went red and then it went pale, and for a second she felt as if she could not take the dear little sixpence. Oh, no, she said. Oh, no, thank you, I mustn't take it, indeed. Her voice was so unlike an ordinary street child's voice and her manner was so like the manner of a well-bred little person that Veronica Eustacia, whose real name was Janet, and Rosalind Gladys, who was really called Nora, leaned forward to listen. But Guy Clarence was not to be thwarted in his benevolence. He thrust the sixpence into her hand. Yes, you must take it, poor little girl, he insisted stoutly. You can buy things to eat with it. It is a whole sixpence. There was something so honest and kind in his face, and he looked so likely to be heartbrokenly disappointed if she did not take it, that Sarah knew she must not refuse him. To be as proud as that would be a cruel thing. So she actually put her pride in her pocket, though it must be admitted her cheeks burned. Thank you, she said. You are a kind, kind little darling thing. And as he scrambled joyfully into the carriage she went away, trying to smile, though she caught her breath quickly and her eyes were shining through a mist. She had known that she looked odd and shabby, but until now she had not known that she might be taken for a beggar. As the large family's carriage drove away, the children inside it were talking with interested excitement. Oh, Donald, this was Guy Clarence's name, Janet exclaimed alarmedly, why did you offer that little girl your sixpence? I'm sure she is not a beggar. She didn't speak like a beggar, cried Nora. And her face didn't really look like a beggar's face. Besides, she didn't beg, said Janet. I was so afraid she might be angry with you. You know, it makes people angry to be taken for beggars when they are not beggars. She wasn't angry, said Donald, a trifle dismayed, but still firm. She laughed a little, and she said I was a kind, kind little darling thing. And I was. Stoutly. It was my whole sixpence. Janet and Nora exchanged glances. A beggar girl would never have said that, decided Janet. She would have said, thank you kindly, little gentleman, thank you, sir, and perhaps she would have bobbed a curtsy. Sarah knew nothing about the fact, but from that time the large family was as profoundly interested in her as she was in it. 
Faces used to appear at the nursery windows when she passed, and many discussions concerning her were held round the fire. She's a kind of servant at the seminary, Janet said. I don't believe she belongs to anybody. I believe she is an orphan. But she is not a beggar, however shabby she looks. And afterward she was called by all of them, the little girl who is not a beggar, which was, of course, rather a long name and sounded very funny sometimes when the youngest one said it in a hurry. Sarah managed to bore a hole in the sixpence and hung it on an old bit of narrow ribbon round her neck. Her affection for the large family increased, as, indeed, her affection for everything she could love increased. She grew fonder and fonder of Becky, and she used to look forward to the two mornings a week when she went into the schoolroom to give the little ones their French lesson. Her small pupils loved her, and strove with each other for the privilege of standing close to her and insinuating their small hands into hers. It fed her hungry heart to feel them nestling up to her. She made such friends with the sparrows that when she stood upon the table, put her head and shoulders out of the attic window, and chirped, she heard almost immediately a flutter of wings and answering twitters, and a little flock of dingy town birds appeared and alighted on the slates to talk to her and make much of the crumbs she scattered. With Melchizedek she had become so intimate that he actually brought Mrs. Melchizedek with him sometimes, and now and then one or two of his children. She used to talk to him, and, somehow, he looked quite as if he understood. There had grown in her mind rather a strange feeling about Emily, who always sat and looked on at everything. It arose in one of her moments of great desolateness. She would have liked to believe or pretend to believe that Emily understood and sympathized with her. She did not like to own to herself that her only companion could feel and hear nothing. She used to put her in a chair sometimes and sit opposite to her on the old red footstool, and stare and pretend about her until her own eyes would grow large with something which was almost like fear, particularly at night when everything was so still, when the only sound in the attic was the occasional sudden scurry and squeak of Melchizedek's family in the wall. One of her pretends was that Emily was a kind of good witch who could protect her. Sometimes, after she had stared at her until she was wrought up to the highest pitch of fancifulness, she would ask her questions and find herself almost feeling as if she would presently answer. But she never did. As to answering, though, said Sarah, trying to console herself, I don't answer very often. I never answer when I can help it. When people are insulting you, there is nothing so good for them as not to say a word, just to look at them and think. Miss Minchin turns pale with rage when I do it, Miss Amelia looks frightened, and so do the girls. When you will not fly into a passion people know you are stronger than they are, because you are strong enough to hold in your rage, and they are not, and they say stupid things they wish they hadn't said afterward. There's nothing so strong as rage, except what makes you hold it in, that's stronger. It's a good thing not to answer your enemies. I scarcely ever do. Perhaps Emily is more like me than I am like myself. Perhaps she would rather not answer her friends, even. She keeps it all in her heart. But though she tried to satisfy herself with these arguments, she did not find it easy. When, after a long, hard day, in which she had been sent here and there, sometimes on long errands through wind and cold and rain, she came in wet and hungry, and was sent out again because nobody chose to remember that she was only a child, and that her slim legs might be tired and her small body might be chilled, when she had been given only harsh words and cold, slighting looks for thanks, when the cook had been vulgar and insolent, when Miss Minchin had been in her worst mood, and when she had seen the girls sneering among themselves at her shabbiness, then she was not always able to comfort her sore, proud, desolate heart with fancies when Emily merely sat upright in her old chair and stared. One of these nights, when she came up to the attic cold and hungry, with a tempest raging in her young breast, Emily's stare seemed so vacant, her sawdust legs and arms so inexpressive, that Sarah lost all control over herself. There was nobody but Emily, no one in the world. And there she sat. I shall die presently, 
she said at first. Emily simply stared. I can't bear this, said the poor child, trembling. I know I shall die. I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm starving to death. I've walked a thousand miles today, and they have done nothing but scold me from morning until night. And because I could not find that last thing the cook sent me for, they would not give me any supper. Some men laughed at me because my old shoes made me slip down in the mud. I'm covered with mud now. And they laughed. Do you hear? She looked at the staring glass eyes and complacent face, and suddenly a sort of heartbroken rage seized her. She lifted her little savage hand and knocked Emily off the chair, bursting into a passion of sobbing, Sarah who never cried. You are nothing but a doll, she cried. Nothing but a doll, doll, doll. You care for nothing. You are stuffed with sawdust. You never had a heart. Nothing could ever make you feel. You are a doll. Emily lay on the floor, with her legs ignominiously doubled up over her head, and a new flat place on the end of her nose, but she was calm, even dignified. Sarah hid her face in her arms. The rats in the wall began to fight and bite each other and squeak and scramble. Melchizedek was chastising some of his family. Sarah's sobs gradually quieted themselves. It was so unlike her to break down that she was surprised at herself. After a while she raised her face and looked at Emily, who seemed to be gazing at her round the side of one angle, and, somehow, by this time actually with a kind of glassy-eyed sympathy. Sarah bent and picked her up. Remorse overtook her. She even smiled at herself a very little smile. You can't help being a doll, she said with a resigned sigh, any more than Lavinia and Jessie can help not having any sense. We are not all made alike. Perhaps you do your sawdust best. And she kissed her and shook her clothes straight, and put her back upon her chair. She had wished very much that someone would take the empty house next door. She wished it because of the attic window which was so near hers. It seemed as if it would be so nice to see it propped open someday and a head and shoulders rising out of the square aperture. If it looked a nice head, she thought, I might begin by saying, good morning, and all sorts of things might happen. But, of course, it's not really likely that anyone but under servants would sleep there. One morning, on turning the corner of the square after a visit to the grocers, the butchers and the bakers, she saw, to her great delight, that during her rather prolonged absence, a van full of furniture had stopped before the next house, the front doors were thrown open, and men in shirt sleeves were going in and out carrying heavy packages and pieces of furniture. It's taken, she said. It really is taken. Oh, I do hope a nice head will look out of the attic window. She would almost have liked to join the group of loiterers who had stopped on the pavement to watch the things carried in. She had an idea that if she could see some of the furniture she could guess something about the people it belonged to. Miss Minchin's tables and chairs are just like her, she thought, I remember thinking that the first minute I saw her, even though I was so little. I told Papa afterward, and he laughed and said it was true. I am sure the large family have fat, comfortable armchairs and sofas, and I can see that their red flowery wallpaper is exactly like them. It's warm and cheerful and kind-looking and happy. She was sent out for parsley to the greengrocers later in the day, and when she came up the area steps her heart gave quite a quick beat of recognition. Several pieces of furniture had been set out of the van upon the pavement. There was a beautiful table of elaborately wrought teakwood, and some chairs, and a screen covered with rich oriental embroidery. The sight of them gave her a weird, homesick feeling. She had seen things so like them in India. One of the things Miss Minchin had taken from her was a carved teakwood desk her father had sent her. They are beautiful things, she said, they look as if they ought to belong to a nice person. All the things look rather grand. I suppose it is a rich family. The vans of furniture came and were unloaded and gave place to others all the day. Several times it so happened that Sarah had an opportunity of seeing things carried in. 
It became plain that she had been right in guessing that the newcomers were people of large means. All the furniture was rich and beautiful, and a great deal of it was oriental. Wonderful rugs and draperies and ornaments were taken from the vans, many pictures, and books enough for a library. Among other things there was a superb god Buddha in a splendid shrine. Someone in the family must have been in India, Sarah thought. They have got used to Indian things and like them. I am glad. I shall feel as if they were friends, even if a head never looks out of the attic window. When she was taking in the evening's milk for the cook, there was really no odd job she was not called upon to do, she saw something occur which made the situation more interesting than ever. The handsome, rosy man who was the father of the large family walked across the square in the most matter-of-fact manner, and ran up the steps of the next-door house. He ran up them as if he felt quite at home and expected to run up and down them many a time in the future. He stayed inside quite a long time, and several times came out and gave directions to the workmen, as if he had a right to do so. It was quite certain that he was in some intimate way connected with the newcomers and was acting for them. If the new people have children, Sarah speculated, the large family children will be sure to come and play with them, and they might come up into the attic just for fun. At night, after her work was done, Becky came in to see her fellow prisoner and bring her news. It's an Indian gentleman that's coming to live next door, miss, she said. I don't know whether he's a black gentleman or not, but he's an Indian one. He's very rich, and he's ill, and the gentleman of the large family is his lawyer. He's had a lot of trouble, and it's made him ill and low in his mind. He worships idols, miss. He's an Ethan and bows down to wood and stone. I seen an idol being carried in for him to worship. Somebody had otter send him a track. You can get a track for a penny. Sarah laughed a little. I don't believe he worships that idol, she said, some people like to keep them to look at because they are interesting. My papa had a beautiful one, and he did not worship it. But Becky was rather inclined to prefer to believe that the new neighbor was an Ethan. It sounded so much more romantic than that he should merely be the ordinary kind of gentleman who went to church with a prayer book. She sat and talked long that night of what he would be like, of what his wife would be like if he had one, and of what his children would be like if they had children. Sarah saw that privately she could not help hoping very much that they would all be black, and would wear turbans, and, above all, that, like their parent, they would all be Ethans. I never lived next door to no Ethans, miss, she said, I should like to see what sort of ways they'd have. It was several weeks before her curiosity was satisfied, and then it was revealed that the new occupant had neither wife nor children. He was a solitary man with no family at all, and it was evident that he was shattered in health and unhappy in mind. A carriage drove up one day and stopped before the house. When the footman dismounted from the box and opened the door the gentleman who was the father of the large family got out first. After him there descended a nurse in uniform, then came down the steps two men servants. They came to assist their master, who, when he was helped out of the carriage, proved to be a man with a haggard, distressed face, and a skeleton body wrapped in furs. He was carried up the steps, and the head of the large family went with him, looking very anxious. Shortly afterward a doctor's carriage arrived, and the doctor went in, plainly to take care of him. There is such a yellow gentleman next door, Sarah, Lottie whispered at the French class afterward. Do you think he is a Chinese? The geography says the Chinese men are yellow. No, he is not Chinese, Sarah whispered back, he is very ill. Go on with your exercise, Lottie. Non, monsieur. J. ne Paula Canif de Mononcle. That was the beginning of the story of the Indian gentleman. 11. Ramdas. There were fine sunsets even in the square, sometimes. One could only see parts of them, however, between the chimneys and over the roofs. From the kitchen windows one could not see them at all, 
and could only guess that they were going on because the bricks looked warm and the air rosy or yellow for a while, or perhaps one saw a blazing glow strike a particular pane of glass somewhere. There was, however, one place from which one could see all the splendor of them, the piles of red or gold clouds in the west, or the purple ones edged with dazzling brightness, or the little fleecy, floating ones, tinged with rose color and looking like flights of pink doves scurrying across the blue in a great hurry if there was a wind. The place where one could see all this, and seem at the same time to breathe a purer air, was, of course, the attic window. When the square suddenly seemed to begin to glow in an enchanted way and look wonderful in spite of its sooty trees and railings, Sarah knew something was going on in the sky, and when it was at all possible to leave the kitchen without being missed or called back, she invariably stole away and crept up the flights of stairs, and, climbing on the old table, got her head and body as far out of the window as possible. When she had accomplished this, she always drew a long breath and looked all round her. It used to seem as if she had all the sky and the world to herself. No one else ever looked out of the other attics. Generally the skylights were closed, but even if they were propped open to admit air, no one seemed to come near them. And there Sarah would stand, sometimes turning her face upward to the blue which seemed so friendly and near, just like a lovely vaulted ceiling, sometimes watching the west and all the wonderful things that happened there, the clouds melting or drifting or waiting softly to be changed pink or crimson or snow white or purple or pale dove grey. Sometimes they made islands or great mountains enclosing lakes of deep turquoise blue, or liquid amber, or chrysoprase green, sometimes dark headlands jutted into strange, lost seas, sometimes slender strips of wonderful lands joined other wonderful lands together. There were places where it seemed that one could run or climb or stand and wait to see what next was coming, until, perhaps, as it all melted, one could float away. At least it seemed so to Sarah, and nothing had ever been quite so beautiful to her as the things she saw as she stood on the table, her body half out of the skylight, the sparrows twittering with sunset softness on the slates. The sparrows always seemed to her to twitter with a sort of subdued softness just when these marvels were going on. There was such a sunset as this a few days after the Indian gentleman was brought to his new home, and, as it fortunately happened that the afternoon's work was done in the kitchen and nobody had ordered her to go anywhere or perform any task, Sarah found it easier than usual to slip away and go upstairs. She mounted her table and stood looking out. It was a wonderful moment. There were floods of molten gold covering the west, as if a glorious tide was sweeping over the world. A deep, rich yellow light filled the air, the birds flying across the tops of the houses showed quite black against it. It's a splendid one, said Sarah, softly, to herself. It makes me feel almost afraid, as if something strange was just going to happen. The splendid ones always make me feel like that. She suddenly turned her head because she heard a sound a few yards away from her. It was an odd sound like a queer little squeaky chattering. It came from the window of the next attic. Someone had come to look at the sunset as she had. There was a head and a part of a body emerging from the skylight, but it was not the head or body of a little girl or a housemaid, it was the picturesque white swathed form and dark-faced, gleaming-eyed, white turban head of a native Indian manservant, Alaska, Sarah said to herself quickly, and the sound she had heard came from a small monkey he held in his arms as if he were fond of it, and which was snuggling and chattering against his breast. As Sarah looked toward him he looked toward her. The first thing she thought was that his dark face looked sorrowful and homesick. She felt absolutely sure he had come up to look at the sun, because he had seen it so seldom in England that he longed for a sight of it. She looked at him interestedly for a second, and then smiled across the slates. She had learned to know how comforting a smile, even from a stranger, may be. Hers was evidently a pleasure to him. His whole expression altered, and he showed such gleaming white teeth as he smiled back that it was as if a light had been illuminated in his dusky face. The friendly look in Sarah's eyes was always very effective when people felt tired or dull.
It was perhaps in making his salute to her that he loosened his hold on the monkey. He was an impish monkey and always ready for adventure, and it is probable that the sight of a little girl excited him. He suddenly broke loose, jumped onto the slates, ran across them chattering, and actually leapt onto Sarah's shoulder, and from there down into her attic room. It made her laugh and delighted her, but she knew he must be restored to his master, if the Lasker was his master, and she wondered how this was to be done. Would he let her catch him, or would he be naughty and refuse to be caught, and perhaps get away and run off over the roofs and be lost? That would not do at all. Perhaps he belonged to the Indian gentleman, and the poor man was fond of him. She turned to the Lasker, feeling glad that she remembered still some of the Hindustani she had learned when she lived with her father. She could make the man understand. She spoke to him in the language he knew. Will he let me catch him? She asked. She thought she had never seen more surprise and delight than the dark face expressed when she spoke in the familiar tongue. The truth was that the poor fellow felt as if his gods had intervened, and the kind little voice came from heaven itself. At once Sarah saw that he had been accustomed to European children. He poured forth a flood of respectful thanks. He was the servant of Missy Sahib. The monkey was a good monkey and would not bite, but, unfortunately, he was difficult to catch. He would flee from one spot to another, like the lightning. He was disobedient, though not evil. Ram Das knew him as if he were his child, and Ram Das he would sometimes obey, but not always. If Missy Sahib would permit Ram Das, he himself could cross the roof to her room, enter the windows, and regain the unworthy little animal. But he was evidently afraid Sarah might think he was taking a great liberty and perhaps would not let him come. But Sarah gave him leave at once. Can you get across? She inquired. In a moment, he answered her. Then come, she said, he is flying from side to side of the room as if he was frightened. Ram Das slipped through his attic window and crossed to hers as steadily and lightly as if he had walked on roofs all his life. He slipped through the skylight and dropped upon his feet without a sound. Then he turned to Sarah and salamed again. The monkey saw him and uttered a little scream. Ram Das hastily took the precaution of shutting the skylight, and then went in chase of him. It was not a very long chase. The monkey prolonged it a few minutes evidently for the mere fun of it, but presently he sprang chattering onto Ram Das's shoulder and sat there chattering and clinging to his neck with a weird little skinny arm. Ram Das thanked Sarah profoundly. She had seen that his quick native eyes had taken in at a glance all the bare shabbiness of the room, but he spoke to her as if he were speaking to the little daughter of a Raja, and pretended that he observed nothing. He did not presume to remain more than a few moments after he had caught the monkey, and those moments were given to further deep and grateful obeisance to her in return for her indulgence. This little evil one, he said, stroking the monkey, was, in truth, not so evil as he seemed, and his master, who was ill, was sometimes amused by him. He would have been made sad if his favorite had run away and been lost. Then he salamed once more and got through the skylight and across the slates again with as much agility as the monkey himself had displayed. When he had gone Sarah stood in the middle of her attic and thought of many things his face and his manner had brought back to her. The sight of his native costume and the profound reverence of his manner stirred all her past memories. It seemed a strange thing to remember that she, the drudge whom the cook had said insulting things to an hour ago, had only a few years ago been surrounded by people who all treated her as Ram Das had treated her, who salamed when she went by, whose foreheads almost touched the ground when she spoke to them, who were her servants and her slaves. It was like a sort of dream. It was all over, and it had never come back. It certainly seemed that there was no way in which any change could take place. She knew what Miss Minchin intended that her future should be. So long as she was too young to be used as a regular teacher, she would be used as an errand girl and servant and yet expected to remember what she had learned and in some mysterious way to learn more. 
the greater number of her evenings she was supposed to spend at study, and at various indefinite intervals she was examined and knew she would have been severely admonished if she had not advanced as was expected of her. The truth, indeed, was that Miss Minchin knew that she was too anxious to learn to require teachers. Give her books, and she would devour them and end by knowing them by heart. She might be trusted to be equal to teaching a good deal in the course of a few years. This was what would happen, when she was older she would be expected to drudge in the schoolroom as she drudged now in various parts of the house, they would be obliged to give her more respectable clothes, but they would be sure to be plain and ugly and to make her look somehow like a servant. That was all there seemed to be to look forward to, and Sarah stood quite still for several minutes and thought it over. Then a thought came back to her which made the color rise in her cheek and a spark light itself in her eyes. She straightened her thin little body and lifted her head. Whatever comes, she said, cannot alter one thing. If I am a princess in rags and tatters, I can be a princess inside. It would be easy to be a princess if I were dressed in cloth of gold, but it is a great deal more of a triumph to be one all the time when no one knows it. There was Marie Antoinette when she was in prison and her throne was gone and she had only a black gown on, and her hair was white, and they insulted her and called her widow Capet. She was a great deal more like a queen then than when she was so gay and everything was so grand. I like her best then. Those howling mobs of people did not frighten her. She was stronger than they were, even when they cut her head off. This was not a new thought, but quite an old one, by this time. It had consoled her through many a bitter day, and she had gone about the house with an expression in her face which Miss Minchin could not understand and which was a source of great annoyance to her, as it seemed as if the child were mentally living a life which held her above the rest of the world. It was as if she scarcely heard the rude and acid things said to her, or, if she heard them, did not care for them at all. Sometimes, when she was in the midst of some harsh, domineering speech, Miss Minchin would find the still, unchildish eyes fixed upon her with something like a proud smile in them. At such times she did not know that Sarah was saying to herself, You don't know that you are saying these things to a princess, and that if I chose I could wave my hand and order you to execution. I only spare you because I am a princess, and you are a poor, stupid, unkind, vulgar old thing, and don't know any better. This used to interest and amuse her more than anything else, and queer and fanciful as it was, she found comfort in it and it was a good thing for her. While the thought held possession of her, she could not be made rude and malicious by the rudeness and malice of those about her. A princess must be polite, she said to herself. And so when the servants, taking their tone from their mistress, were insolent and ordered her about, she would hold her head erect and reply to them with a quaint civility which often made them stare at her. She's got more airs and graces than if she come from Buckingham Palace, that young one, said the cook, chuckling a little sometimes. I lose my temper with her often enough, but I will say she never forgets her manners. If you please, cook, will you be so kind, cook? I beg your pardon, cook, may I trouble you, cook? She drops him about the kitchen as if there was nothing. The morning after the interview with Ram Dass and his monkey, Sarah was in the schoolroom with her small pupils. Having finished giving them their lessons, she was putting the French exercise books together and thinking, as she did it, of the various things royal personages in disguise were called upon to do, Alfred the Great, for instance, burning the cakes and getting his ears boxed by the wife of the neat herd. How frightened she must have been when she found out what she had done. If Miss Minchin should find out that she, Sarah, whose toes were almost sticking out of her boots, was a princess, a real one. The look in her eyes was exactly the look which Miss Minchin most disliked. She would not have it, she was quite near her and was so enraged that she actually flew at her and boxed her ears, exactly as the neat herd's wife had boxed King Alfred's. It made Sarah start. She wakened from her dream at the shock, and, catching her breath, stood still a second. Then, not knowing she was going to do it, 
She broke into a little laugh. What are you laughing at, you bold, impudent child? Miss Minchin exclaimed. It took Sarah a few seconds to control herself sufficiently to remember that she was a princess. Her cheeks were red and smarting from the blow she had received. I was thinking, she answered. Beg my pardon immediately, said Miss Minchin. Sarah hesitated a second before she replied. I will beg your pardon for laughing, if it was rude, she said then, but I won't beg your pardon for thinking. What were you thinking? demanded Miss Minchin. How dare you think? What were you thinking? Jessie tittered, and she and Lavinia nudged each other in unison. All the girls looked up from their books to listen. Really, it always interested them a little when Miss Minchin attacked Sarah. Sarah always said something queer, and never seemed the least bit frightened. She was not in the least frightened now, though her boxed ears were scarlet and her eyes were as bright as stars. I was thinking, she answered grandly and politely, that you did not know what you were doing. That I did not know what I was doing? Miss Minchin fairly gasped. Yes, said Sarah, and I was thinking what would happen if I were a princess and you boxed my ears, what I should do to you. And I was thinking that if I were one, you would never dare to do it, whatever I said or did. And I was thinking how surprised and frightened you would be if you suddenly found out. She had the imagined future so clearly before her eyes that she spoke in a manner which had an effect even upon Miss Minchin. It almost seemed for the moment to her narrow, unimaginative mind that there must be some real power hidden behind this candid daring. What? she exclaimed. Found out what? That I really was a princess, said Sarah, and could do anything, anything I liked. Every pair of eyes in the room widened to its full limit. Lavinia leaned forward on her seat to look. Go to your room, cried Miss Minchin, breathlessly, this instant. Leave the schoolroom. Attend to your lessons, young ladies. Sarah made a little bow. Excuse me for laughing if it was impolite, she said, and walked out of the room, leaving Miss Minchin struggling with her rage and the girls whispering over their books. Did you see her? Did you see how queer she looked? Jessie broke out. I shouldn't be at all surprised if she did turn out to be something. Suppose she should. 12. The Other Side of the Wall When one lives in a row of houses, it is interesting to think of the things which are being done and said on the other side of the wall of the very rooms one is living in. Sarah was fond of amusing herself by trying to imagine the things hidden by the wall which divided the select seminary from the Indian gentleman's house. She knew that the schoolroom was next to the Indian gentleman's study, and she hoped that the wall was thick so that the noise made sometimes after lesson hours would not disturb him. I am growing quite fond of him, she said to Ermengarde, I should not like him to be disturbed. I have adopted him for a friend. You can do that with people you never speak to at all. You can just watch them, and think about them and be sorry for them, until they seem almost like relations. I'm quite anxious sometimes when I see the doctor call twice a day. I have very few relations, said Ermengarde, reflectively, and I'm very glad of it. I don't like those I have. My two aunts are always saying, dear me, Ermengarde. You are very fat. You shouldn't eat sweets, and my uncle is always asking me things like, when did Edward III ascend the throne? And, who died of a surfeit of lampreys? Sarah laughed. People you never speak to can't ask you questions like that, she said, and I'm sure the Indian gentleman wouldn't even if he was quite intimate with you. I am fond of him. She had become fond of the large family because they looked happy, but she had become fond of the Indian gentleman because he looked unhappy. He had evidently not fully recovered from some very severe illness. In the kitchen, where, of course, the servants, through some mysterious means, knew everything, there was much discussion of his case. He was not an Indian gentleman really, but an Englishman who had lived in India. 
he had met with great misfortunes which had for a time so imperiled his whole fortune that he had thought himself ruined and disgraced forever. The shock had been so great that he had almost died of brain fever, and ever since he had been shattered in health, though his fortunes had changed and all his possessions had been restored to him. His trouble and peril had been connected with mines. And mines with diamonds in M, said the cook. No savins of mine never goes into no mines, particular diamond ones with a side glance at Sarah. We all know something of them. He felt as my papa felt, Sarah thought. He was ill as my papa was, but he did not die. So her heart was more drawn to him than before. When she was sent out at night she used sometimes to feel quite glad, because there was always a chance that the curtains of the house next door might not yet be closed and she could look into the warm room and see her adopted friend. When no one was about she used sometimes to stop, and, holding to the iron railings, wish him good night as if he could hear her. Perhaps you can feel if you can't hear, was her fancy. Perhaps kind thoughts reach people somehow, even through windows and doors and walls. Perhaps you feel a little warm and comforted, and don't know why, when I am standing here in the cold and hoping you will get well and happy again. I am so sorry for you, she would whisper in an intense little voice. I wish you had a little missus who could pet you as I used to pet papa when he had a headache. I should like to be your little missus myself, poor dear. Good night, good night. God bless you. She would go away, feeling quite comforted and a little warmer herself. Her sympathy was so strong that it seemed as if it must reach him somehow as he sat alone in his armchair by the fire, nearly always in a great dressing gown, and nearly always with his forehead resting in his hand as he gazed hopelessly into the fire. He looked to Sarah like a man who had a trouble on his mind still, not merely like one whose troubles lay all in the past. He always seems as if he were thinking of something that hurts him now, she said to herself, but he has got his money back and he will get over his brain fever in time, so he ought not to look like that. I wonder if there is something else. If there was something else, something even servants did not hear of, she could not help believing that the father of the large family knew it, the gentleman she called Mr. Montmorency. Mr. Montmorency went to see him often, and Mrs. Montmorency and all the little Montmorencies went, too, though less often. He seemed particularly fond of the two elder little girls, the Janet and Nora who had been so alarmed when their small brother Donald had given Sarah his sixpence. He had, in fact, a very tender place in his heart for all children, and particularly for little girls. Janet and Nora were as fond of him as he was of them, and looked forward with the greatest pleasure to the afternoons when they were allowed to cross the square and make their well-behaved little visits to him. They were extremely decorous little visits because he was an invalid. He is a poor thing, said Janet, and he says we cheer him up. We try to cheer him up very quietly. Janet was the head of the family, and kept the rest of it in order. It was she who decided when it was discreet to ask the Indian gentleman to tell stories about India, and it was she who saw when he was tired and it was the time to steal quietly away and tell Ram Dass to go to him. They were very fond of Ram Dass. He could have told any number of stories if he had been able to speak anything but Hindustani. The Indian gentleman's real name was Mr. Carisford, and Janet told Mr. Carisford about the encounter with the little girl who was not a beggar. He was very much interested, and all the more so when he heard from Ram Das of the adventure of the monkey on the roof. Ram Das made for him a very clear picture of the attic and its desolateness, of the bare floor and broken plaster, the rusty, empty grate, and the hard, narrow bed. Carmichael, he said to the father of the large family, after he had heard this description, I wonder how many of the attics in this square are like that one, and how many wretched little servant girls sleep on such beds, while I toss on my down pillows, loaded and harassed by wealth that is, most of it, not mine. My dear fellow, Mr. Carmichael answered cheerily, the sooner you cease tormenting yourself the better it will be for you. If you possessed all the wealth of all the Indies, 
you could not set right all the discomforts in the world, and if you began to refurnish all the attics in this square, there would still remain all the attics in all the other squares and streets to put in order. And there you are. Mr. Carsford sat and bit his nails as he looked into the glowing bed of coals in the grate. Do you suppose, he said slowly, after a pause, do you think it is possible that the other child, the child I never cease thinking of, I believe, could be, could possibly be reduced to any such condition as the poor little soul next door? Mr. Carmichael looked at him uneasily. He knew that the worst thing the man could do for himself, for his reason and his health, was to begin to think in the particular way of this particular subject. If the child at Madame Pascal's school in Paris was the one you are in search of, he answered soothingly, she would seem to be in the hands of people who can afford to take care of her. They adopted her because she had been the favorite companion of their little daughter who died. They had no other children, and Madame Pascal said that they were extremely well-to-do Russians. And the wretched woman actually did not know where they had taken her, exclaimed Mr. Carsford. Mr. Carmichael shrugged his shoulders. She was a shrewd, worldly Frenchwoman, and was evidently only too glad to get the child so comfortably off her hands when the father's death left her totally unprovided for. Women of her type do not trouble themselves about the futures of children who might prove burdens. The adopted parents apparently disappeared and left no trace. But you say if the child was the one I am in search of. You say if. We are not sure. There was a difference in the name. Madame Pascal pronounced it as if it were Carew instead of Crew, but that might be merely a matter of pronunciation. The circumstances were curiously similar. An English officer in India had placed his motherless little girl at the school. He had died suddenly after losing his fortune. Mr. Carmichael paused a moment, as if a new thought had occurred to him. Are you sure the child was left at a school in Paris? Are you sure it was Paris? My dear fellow, broke forth Carsford, with restless bitterness, I am sure of nothing. I never saw either the child or her mother. Ralph Crew and I loved each other as boys, but we had not met since our school days, until we met in India. I was absorbed in the magnificent promise of the mines. He became absorbed, too. The whole thing was so huge and glittering that we half lost our heads. When we met we scarcely spoke of anything else. I only knew that the child had been sent to school somewhere. I do not even remember, now, how I knew it. He was beginning to be excited. He always became excited when his still weakened brain was stirred by memories of the catastrophes of the past. Mr. Carmichael watched him anxiously. It was necessary to ask some questions, but they must be put quietly and with caution. But you had reason to think the school was in Paris? Yes, was the answer, because her mother was a Frenchwoman, and I had heard that she wished her child to be educated in Paris. It seemed only likely that she would be there. Yes, Mr. Carmichael said, it seems more than probable. The Indian gentleman leaned forward and struck the table with a long, wasted hand. Carmichael, he said, I must find her. If she is alive, she is somewhere. If she is friendless and penniless, it is through my fault. How is a man to get back his nerve with a thing like that on his mind? This sudden change of luck at the mines has made realities of all our most fantastic dreams, and poor Crew's child may be begging in the street. No, no, said Carmichael. Try to be calm. Console yourself with the fact that when she is found you have a fortune to hand over to her. Why was I not man enough to stand my ground when things looked black? Carsford groaned in petulant misery. I believe I should have stood my ground if I had not been responsible for other people's money as well as my own. Poor Crew had put into the scheme every penny that he owned. He trusted me, he loved me. And he died thinking I had ruined him, I, Tom Carsford, who played cricket at Eton with him. What a villain he must have thought me. Don't reproach yourself so bitterly. 
I don't reproach myself because the speculation threatened to fail, I reproach myself for losing my courage. I ran away like a swindler and a thief, because I could not face my best friend and tell him I had ruined him and his child. The good-hearted father of the large family put his hand on his shoulder comfortingly. You ran away because your brain had given way under the strain of mental torture, he said. You were half delirious already. If you had not been you would have stayed and fought it out. You were in a hospital, strapped down in bed, raving with brain fever, two days after you left the place. Remember that. Carsford dropped his forehead in his hands. Good God. Yes, he said. I was driven mad with dread and horror. I had not slept for weeks. The night I staggered out of my house all the air seemed full of hideous things mocking and mouthing at me. That is explanation enough in itself, said Mr. Carmichael. How could a man on the verge of brain fever judge sanely? Carisford shook his drooping head. And when I returned to consciousness poor crew was dead, and buried. And I seemed to remember nothing. I did not remember the child for months and months. Even when I began to recall her existence everything seemed in a sort of haze. He stopped a moment and rubbed his forehead. It sometimes seems so now when I try to remember. Surely I must sometime have heard Crewe speak of the school she was sent to. Don't you think so? He might not have spoken of it definitely. You never seem even to have heard her real name. He used to call her by an odd pet name he had invented. He called her his little missus. But the wretched minds drove everything else out of our heads. We talked of nothing else. If he spoke of the school, I forgot, I forgot. And now I shall never remember. Come, come, said Carmichael. We shall find her yet. We will continue to search for Madame Pascal's good-natured Russians. She seemed to have a vague idea that they lived in Moscow. We will take that as a clue. I will go to Moscow. If I were able to travel, I would go with you, said Carisford, but I can only sit here wrapped in furs and stare at the fire. And when I look into it I seem to see Cruz's gay young face gazing back at me. He looks as if he were asking me a question. Sometimes I dream of him at night, and he always stands before me and asks the same question in words. Can you guess what he says, Carmichael? Mr. Carmichael answered him in a rather low voice. Not exactly, he said. He always says, Tom, old man, Tom, where is the little missus? He caught at Carmichael's hand and clung to it. I must be able to answer him, I must, he said. Help me to find her. Help me. On the other side of the wall Sarah was sitting in her garret talking to Melchizedek, who had come out for his evening meal. It has been hard to be a princess today, Melchizedek, she said. It has been harder than usual. It gets harder as the weather grows colder and the streets get more sloppy. When Lavinia laughed at my muddy skirt as I passed her in the hall, I thought of something to say all in a flash, and I only just stopped myself in time. You can't sneer back at people like that, if you are a princess. But you have to bite your tongue to hold yourself in. I bit mine. It was a cold afternoon, Melchizedek. And it's a cold night. Quite suddenly she put her black head down in her arms, as she often did when she was alone. Oh Papa, she whispered, what a long time it seems since I was your little missus. This was what happened that day on both sides of the wall. Listening. 88thpp.com 88thpp.com